Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Back in the 90s, a rite of passage for many Black girls was that fateful day you could finally get a kitty purse. Oh, my. Hair so soft, silky, and free. I want something just for me. Just for me. You could finally be one of the perm box girls, the gorgeous, gorgeous girls who modeled for the go-to at-home relaxers for black girls' hair. I was never allowed to get one, but these girls were legends to me and so many other little 90s babies who wanted sleek, shiny, and most importantly, straight hair. A couple months ago, a Twitter user by the name of Ash the Don Leon asked, where are these girls today? One day I'm reading on Twitter, reading these tweets. You know, Black Twitter is really funny. And then I come across this tweet and I'm like, oh, it's my time. <laughs> this is me. Like, I, I'm here. <laughs> That's Allison Griffin. In the 90s, she grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the Black hair capitals in America, maybe even the world. And that's where she landed her first modeling gig when she was eight years old. I became a perm box girl, kind of just right place, right time type of situation. My mom was getting her hair done by her hairstylist and someone came in looking for models. Like, do you know any kids with nice hair, quote unquote? Mm, interesting. Yeah. And my mom was like, oh yeah, I have a daughter with, with nice hair. She showed them my picture and, and that was it. What do you think they meant by that nice hair? I think they meant soft looking or the straighter, the better kind of. And back then? straight, relaxed hair, what someone today might call Becky hair, perhaps, was what you had to have. Did you ever like buy the perm box with your face on it and actually use the perm inside? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I used it. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So you really must have felt like that girl then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We bought like like six jars because <laughs> I was on a jar and then I was on the side of the box too. Black women and girls know better than anyone that hair is just as much a part of how you see yourself as it is how other people see and understand you. And that's a message we start hearing from day one. It's a part of your presentation. It's part of who you are. It's your crown. And it needs to look right at all times. When you step outside the house, you don't have the bonnet on your head. It's not looking crazy. It's not looking crusty. Your hair is done. You're not going outside with no nappy head. You know, like, your hair looks like a rat's nest. What is this? Things like that, you know? Implying, like, if it's curly, if it's big, if it's bushy, then it, it looks crazy. Do you still get relaxers now as an adult? Absolutely not. Times have changed, and Black women and girls now embrace their natural curls. But that has consequences, because our hair is constantly under a microscope. From perms to afros to weaves to wigs, someone always has something to say about Black women's hair. It's the thing that when we walk in the room to, you see it. That's Michaela Angela Davis, writer and executive producer of a docuseries on Hulu called The Hair Tales. It drives people nuts because we're going to be emancipated. We're going to find our liberation. And our hair is a constant reminder of that pursuit and you can't have it. That's why it's distracting in school because that little blonde girl can't get 3,000 box braids with little bows on them. And now you're putting pink braids that are dragging down to the floor with 36,000 beads. And like, what? You dare to be like a walking art museum. 
talk to me about the monetary cost yes. of not adhering to certain standards, quote unquote, and parameters when it comes to hairstyling. How many Black women have we lost because their hair wasn't appropriate or they couldn't fight back right. or they couldn't right. get that job or they couldn't get into that school? You know, because you can walk into an interview, think you killed it, and they saw your box braids and decided you were ghetto. But it's not even just in employment. We're talking about in housing. That's Democratic Representative Cori Bush. People want a certain look, you know, what they think that is considered presentable and uh, are, are palatable. It can be something that'll stop you at the door from getting the type of home or moving into the type of neighborhood on a particular block. Mm -hmm. It can stop you from educational opportunities. Bush is a champion for the Crown Act, which would be a federal ban on hairstyle discrimination in employment, education, and housing. This makes it explicit that you must prohibit discrimination based on hair texture and protective styles. And we even go as far to say what that is. So... It says locks. It says cornrows and braids, twists, bantu knots, and afros. Today, we're focusing on the efforts of these two women, Representative Cori Bush and Michaela Angela Davis. Through her documentary, Michaela Angela Davis sees our hair as a site of liberation. And Cori Bush wants to pass federal legislation to protect our freedom to choose our hair without repercussion. And for Bush, that begins by walking the halls of Congress. After a quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. Talking about your future can be uncomfortable, whether it's about how expensive college will be for your children, realizing how much you need to save for retirement, or really anything to do with life insurance. It can be overwhelming. But you don't have to do it alone. With more than 170 years of financial experience, Mass Mutual can help you plan for the important moments. Call a Mass Mutual financial professional today. Feel comfortable about tomorrow. It's a pleasure to talk with you today, Representative Cori Bush. Oh, yeah, you too, Brittany. Thank you. Talk to me about you walking into the Capitol for the first time as a Congresswoman. Did you think about how you were going to wear your hair that day? I did, actually. I was thinking, you know, I needed a protective style, but something that would be easy. Mm-hmm. Because also, I didn't have a hairstylist in D.C., and oh. like I just didn't. So I was like, let me do something where I know I could take care of my own hair if need be. So I decided to just wear my hair straight, and then I just put some micro links in it just to add, you know, add length and add a little more thickness to it. Mm. But, you know, even that, just wearing it straight and so straight, it just felt, it just, you know, every day it just felt like, not quite right. Not quite right. Like I didn't totally feel my authentic self. What would have felt more authentic? Um, Probably if I would have had my braids. I see you have the braids in today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you were running for Congress, you were told by somebody that you needed to get Becky hair. And and for people who can't visualize that, it's like the silky straight blows in the wind down past your shoulders, maybe down past your shoulder blades kind of hair that many of us associate correctly or not with professionalism. Mm -hmm. And with that story, you described a professional experience familiar to many Black women across all industries, which points to consequences, right? If you don't follow through on getting that Becky hair, 
What do Black women lose out on when we don't adhere to styling our hair a certain way in the workplace? First of all, you may not even get the employment, but in the workplace, promotions, respect from your peers, your own space being invaded, you know, from people feeling like, I need to touch your hair. Like, I don't mm-hmm. understand it. The fact that we have to give accounts about our hair and why our hair looks different today. I remember years ago, someone, they were like, oh, every time you come to work, your hair is just like every week, your <laughs> hair is different, you know? And I would say, well, yeah, because every time I, I wash my hair, my I have to do a style all over again. Like mm-hmm. my hair does not, it's not the same style it was once I washed my hair. And they just looked at me like, what is she talking about? Mm. I remember years ago, maybe oh, definitely a little over 20 years ago, sitting in workshops where they would talk to you about how to be presentable when you're applying for jobs mm. and telling men, um, Black men, don't wear locks. Right. Don't wear don't wear dreadlocks, you know, because you you won't get the job. You know, people will f- see you as a threat. And so, you know, cut your hair and wear it, you know, wear it nicely groomed. Mm-hmm. Would tell us, you know, don't color your hair. Pull your hair back in a ponytail or just wear it straight, but make mm-hmm. sure it's off your shoulders and, you know, all of those things. And it's just like my hair won't do any part of this job. Like my hair is not, you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm slinging burgers. My hair is not slinging the burgers. You know, if I'm, you know, if if I'm going to be your accountant, there's not one piece of my hair, you know, that is adding a thing, you know? So, but, but because so many of us came up hearing that Mm -hmm. there's still, at least for me, it hits me. Is this professional enough before I step outside of my home? I had to let that go. I want to I want to turn actually to talk about what you have been working on to be able to um curtail some of you know these logistical you know hoops that so many black people black women especially are jumping through just to go to work or to be able to secure housing um the crown act you've been working on the crown act uh, and trying to get it passed for some time mm-hmm. can you explain why you feel it's necessary for us to legislate hair in this way Race-based hair discrimination is a real thing. Statistics have shown us 66% of Black children in majority white high schools have faced race-based hair discrimination. 86% of those children before the age of 12. And for our listeners, Representative Bush is citing a study done by Dove for the Crown Act. Those formative years, we're telling uh, human beings, new human beings to the to this earth, you know, we're telling them, you know, how they have to show up in the world and mm. it can't be the way that they were born. If we don't do this, then what we're saying is this discrimination that continues to be like lodged against us, that it's not real. Mm. But when, and actually it is. It's real. It's measurable. And it's a social and economic, it has a social and economic impact on every person, but especially Black women. And it starts with Black girls. Black women know this. That's why I think it's no coincidence that as the number of Black women in Congress rises, 27 in the 118th Congress, we see more of this type of legislation. The question is, can they convince others to hear them out? Representative Cori Bush tries to. After a quick break. When you need to convince someone that this bill must pass now, what story do you tell? Our work has to be about who comes up next. Mm. When we look at who's showing up as the most educated 
group of people in this country, we know that that has time and time again, the research has shown Black women. Mm. But, but when Black women are not able to get the jobs based upon the way that they look, when we can't be respected for who we are in the world, we can't be respected for the way that we are created, but corporations profit by huge margins based upon how we wear our hair and based upon how we look. So we can't look this way to go and work for you, but you need people who look this way to be able to put the money in your pocket. Who are the people who are the hardest to convince that this bill needs to pass? (laughs) Um, You know, it has mostly been my uh, white Republican colleagues. You know, I remember listening to the debate and some of them were saying, oh, well, we need to we have so many other issues in this country that we need to be talking about. Like, this is not a real thing. But what they don't want to understand, what they don't want to realize or maybe don't care that since this country's founding, we have conditioned this country has conditioned black women and girls that our hair has to be straightened or altered in order for us to be treated fairly and with respect. But why is it Black women have to be altered? You know, white men can show up how they show up in mm-hmm. anything. I'm running for office. White men can show up in jeans and a and a uh, uh, a business shirt. Didn't even have to do anything to their hair. And they would get the microphone and people would applaud and all was well. You know, but I had to show up in a full suit and the hair a certain way and only, you know, mi- minimal makeup and small earrings. All of these things just to be taken seriously. They consider it probably part of being woke. They need to wake up. Discrimination against Black hairstyles, we know it's just one form of the systemic inequities that Black people face, you know, um, whether trying to obtain the housing or the jobs or the, you know, the, the education. It's like if we open the door to say that we acknowledge that there is racism here, then we will have to acknowledge there, there is racism in all of these other places. Hmm. Congresswoman Bush, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This was really great. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a great one. That was Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush from Missouri. Now, the Crown Act passed in the House last year, while Democrats controlled the chamber. But in 2023, there's a new Congress with Republicans controlling the House. The Crown Act could be put up for a vote again, but in a Republican-controlled House, it would likely fail. Representative Bush has been pushing for legislation to address hair discrimination. My next guest, Michaela Angela Davis, has a documentary out on Hulu, The Hair Tales, that she hopes will inspire Black women to continue celebrating their natural hair, even if the majority of Congress won't. And through that, as more Black women stand their ground, change might come. Michaela Angela Davis, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I think that for Black women, hair is a touchstone and also representative of both our public and our private selves. So many of the women who participated in the series shared a story of a parent, a boyfriend, husband, employer, or even a stranger, because we've also all been there, yeah. who felt the need to comment upon her hair and whether or not it was acceptable or good enough or how she should be wearing it, right? Yeah. Why is it that Black women's hair seems to perpetually be up for comment. Because our hair is that entry, that flashpoint to our whole identity. And also, hair has the tenets of culture. Culture has memory, innovation, language, and ritual. Wow. Black women 
in our hair. We have all of that. And because we have this place of freedom, our hair is a site for our expression, economy, culture. And I think that's why it sets so many people off. If you can control her hair, you can control her. You know, and if you can control Black women, you can control the Black community. Mm, I really, really, really love that concept of Black hair having all of the tenets of culture and what culture is. And that absolutely speaks to how powerful it is. And there's a, a specific story from the documentary that really demonstrates that to me, how people can feel threatened by Black hair. So one of the most surprising stories that's shared in the series to me comes from Oprah Winfrey, whose thick hair is famous. Like, I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's hair famous. is famous. It's famous. Yes. The hair in and of itself is famous. And we learned that that Oprah lost all her hair after a bad perm that she was forced to get by her bosses at one of her first TV jobs in her early 20s in Baltimore. They sent her up to New York City to see this French hairstylist who probably didn't even know how to do black hair from what I could tell, let alone put in a relaxer. So I say, excuse me, but do you all do black hair here? And true story. The guy says, we, madame, we do black hair. We do blonde hair, we do we do red hair, we do your hair. Like, why did she run? <laughs> I know. You know what? We've all had moments like that, though. We uh. go to the salon and we speak to someone. I once had a woman who had locks uh, cut my hair, and she had come highly recommended to me. And I saw her, and she was like, oh, how did you get your hair to do that? I'm thinking, like, girl, you are oh. the... You are the expert. And she was like, I could, my hair is just like yours and I couldn't figure it out. Now I should have left, obviously. Well, but it's, we're so vulnerable. <laughs> and you know, when you think about, you know, this is also, you think about Oprah being 22, <sighs> breaking into this impossible market. Right. Being, you know, being black from a distance, being not, you know, model skinny, all the things. And here she is. Of course, she's going to try to do, like, it. what yes. a vulnerable place for her to be. Like, wow. So I know why she didn't run, but I wish oh. she ran. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, the, what happened afterward to me is so interesting and saddening because she was pulled from appearing on air because, like, yeah. I mean, she said that the, that the hair that she did have left after the perm was being held onto her head by scabs and it was still falling out. So the first time I wash my, every time I comb my hair, hair scab would come out, hair would come out. Every time I wash my hair, comb, it would just fall into the sink. And that blew my mind. I know. But she said that she was pulled from appearing on air, like literally was told that she could not do her job. Yes. And she ended up having to shave her head and that, I guess, began Oprah's sort of like, Big chop, natural hair journey, you know, back then. And she said after that, she didn't have anybody touch her hair for seven or eight years. But I th I think that that story perfectly illustrates how hair for Black women is about much more than achieving a certain look yes. or attaining desirability, which I think a lot of times narrower conversations about Black women's hair come down to desirability and does this man want to talk to you and all this sort of stuff. You know, arguably she's probably the wealthiest black woman any of us could. And wealthy, not just being money, but like she's wealthy, you know, like she has, she has riches and luxury and opulence. She had to kind of go through fire to get there. And if she was someone else, that incident might have knocked her out. And this is also how many black women have we lost because 
their hair wasn't appropriate or they couldn't fight back or they couldn't get that job or they couldn't get into that school, you know, because you don't know, you can walk into an interview, think you killed it and they saw your box braids and, and decided you were ghetto. One of the things that I think about or the people that I think about the most are the workers, are the beauty workers, are the generations and tens of thousands of black women who stood on their feet with their hands in our head, you know, giving us money to go to college, to get letting us go to church with some dignity, holding down the communities, you know, like beauty parlors are, you know, are, are staples in the community and these Beauty workers yeah. have been, you know, this is a place where they could get off their knees and get out of the, out of domestic work. So there's like a, this rich, rich, mm. rich, rich history in the workers and the economy. And now you look at all the brands from uh, Madam C.J. Walker to Tracy and Lisa Price with Carol's Daughter and all these, you know. Carol's Daughter, right. There's so many great brands and Black women finding also economic freedom not just in the doing of hair, but in the products. And that's why, you know, we have um, Dr. Tiffany Gill, whose book, um, Beauty Shop Politics, really talks about that, you know, in a scholarly way, how, why it was such a powerful place, because often the products were made by Black women, the spaces were Black women, mm-hmm. the clients were Black women, mm-hmm. and the workers were Black women. Mm-hmm. And that's why we were they were able to use that money to help fund the civil rights movement. That's why they were able to use those spaces to organize clandestine NAACP meetings. That's why they were able to use those spaces for women to register people to vote because no one was studying them because they thought, oh, these are just black ladies doing hair. Mm. They were like, they were <laughs> strategizing. They were under the radar because it, it was two things that nobody cared about, black women and their hair. <laughs> and they couldn't get fired. If you went to a beauty shop, and there's an NAACP meeting happening in the back room. Nobody knew that because they weren't surveilling Black women because they didn't care about Black women. Gosh. So, of course, we under, of course we did stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you going to leave us alone? We're going to do stuff. There's this really fantastic explanation provided by one of the experts in the series. She's making a remark about how Black hairstyles change throughout time and how in the 60s, let's say, if you're going to marches and you're going to protest, the thought is, is that for the optics, it's important to look respectable and thus you should look like church ready. So your hair is, you know, fried, dyed, laid to the side, as people like to say, but it's straight, it's straight, it's pressed, it's curled, you know, and, and that's what's reflected in a lot of the images from that time. And then in the 70s, with Black is Beautiful and, and and the Black Power Movement, Black aesthetics became the center for us, like moving from the margins to the center for us. And we began to embrace our natural textures and Afros became popular. But the other thing that it did make me think of also, though, is like there's beauty in the idea, right, that you can see a photo of a Black woman from some point in history and you can know, at least when the past, within the past 100 years, you could know what, almost down to the year <laughs> when the photo was taken based off of her hairstyle. So like on one hand, there's this great creativity, but then on the yes. other hand, to me, yes. it also is somewhat of a reminder of like the target for respectability and acceptability is always shifting. Yes. And Black women must yes. shift with it. What do you think about that? Yes. <laughs> I do. I think about it. That's what, you know, and I like people that think about like Dr. Joan Morgan, like she's the one that really t- 
talked about how the target keeps moving, you know, and mm. this is the black experience and particularly for black women. It's, there's a complex tension at all times. Mm. And what I was hoping with the hair tails is that we, that we just put more energy into that dynamic imagination, like elevate that more because I think we have a lot of storytelling and a lot of emphasis on the oppression and, and Mm. backlash, Mm. right? I'm not diminishing that. I am not, you know, in any way ignoring it. Obviously one of the hopes in the hair tales is that we get that whole range of the fun and the complexity. It's amazing because that brings me to the sacred space of a beauty salon. In the doc, one of the interview guests described the hair salon as Black Women's Country Club. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I, and I love that. I love that. It's the space that produces the creativity that you were just referring to. I loved it too. And I, I just, it gave me just joy because it is. And just imagine if you gave Black women more time to be together and not mess with them, not just four or five mm. hours on Saturday, like what we could do. But that also speaks to the role of the hairstylist. All power to the hairstylist. Oh my gosh, yes. A sacred relationship, I believe when Tracy That's right. and Oprah were talking. Yeah. And I got chill. I got chill saying it right now. I've had the same hairstylist for 10 years. Uh, that is an anniversary that I hold dear <laughs> up with my own birthday. <laughs> when have I met my husband? That's right. That's Jessica Cruel, the uh, editor-in-chief of Allure was saying that. Like, right. you know, the, your hairstylist is often the first person that learns that you have cancer or you're getting a divorce or you're getting married or all these big moments in your life. Like it is, you know, an incredible relationship. I've seen a huge increase in visibility and acceptance socially of Black women's hair, like, like socioculturally. But- Sociopolitically, we're still having to fight for things like the Crown Act. It feels like you, the Black women's hair is still in such a vulnerable place. Like, how did we really get to that point? Well, you know, the thing is, it, because it still is Black women's liberation, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about freedom. Mm. And we're talking about freedom to exist. And we're talking about freedom to take up space. And we're talking about freedom to have agency and creativity. That's the tension, Brittany. That's the resistance. Mm. No one expected us to even survive, let alone be emancipated and be self-emancipated, right? Mm -hmm. And so our hair just is this reminder of our beauty, our identity, our humanity, our power, our persistence, our resilience. You know, our hair held our history. Our hair would tell you what tribe we're from, whether you're married. Sometimes I go on Instagram and I look at these braided styles and I can't even believe it. All these little girls with these little hearts braided in their head, like, you know, it's so easy to do now. And I'm like, look, they're just telling you they love themselves or they're trying. Michaela, Angela, this is fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show today. I I had a great time. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate you. That was Michaela Angela Davis. Her documentary series called Hair Tales is on Hulu. Before I go, I have a quick request. IBAM is working on a story about scammers. 
and we want to hear from you. So if you've ever been the victim of a Zelle or Bitcoin scam, text or phone call phishing, or had an account hacked, we want to hear your story. Did you report it to your bank or a company? How did they respond? Record your story using your voice memos and email it to ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose, Jamila Huxtable. It was produced and edited by Jessica Mendoza. Our intern is Jamal Michelle. It was edited by Jessica Placek. Engineering support came from Josh Newell, Robert Rodriguez. We have fact-checking help from Barkley Walsh, Candice Bo Corkamp. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Brittany Luce. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. NPR.